Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start MJ Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis This is Discussion with Fran Lewis Brought to you by MJ Network MJ in memory of my sister Marsha Joyce And this is exciting we have novelist, writing coach, manuscript editor John Ditakis takes a spotlight, former editor on CNN's The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. He's the author of five mystery novels of which I read Fast Track and I couldn't put it down. So join me for the interview right now, and good morning and welcome to MJ Network. Hi, friend. Thanks very much. I, I am excited. Now, this is this is great. I have your questions, yours, the ones that you want. Is you were a journalist for 45 years, including a stint as well, White House correspondent, and for seven years you were one of Wolf Blitz's editors at CNN. How, does, how has journalism evolved over the years, and are you concerned? Because I listen to the media, and I wonder sometimes, too. It's definitely uh, evolved, and um, I am concerned, but I'm also hopeful. Um, we, I mean, there was a time 100 years ago where uh, they called it yellow journalism, where uh, uh-huh. things were very competitive and um, sensationalized and things like that. And um, journalism e- evolved to a point where it was much more objective. There was, an, uh, there was an attempt to get both sides and to be fair, and that has uh, – uh, and that still remains at reputable news mm. organizations, of which there are still many. But – um, there has also been a proliferation of um, lying. <laughs> Let's just put it, mm-hmm. like say it bluntly. Um, you know, there there are uh, uh, there's no because of the First Amendment. You know, there's there's no government entity that will you know be the arbiter of truth, uh, which mm-hmm. means that any new consumer consumer needs to be um, discerning about the information that they're getting um, because there are now so many voices out there. I mean, um, there, the people complain about, quote, unquote, the media as if it's a monolith, but the word mm-hmm. itself is, is plural. And so uh, the media is a misnomer. It's just that it's a cacophony. There's just so many voices. Mm-hmm. And so journalism has evolved. And with the Internet, um, the, both the strengths and the weaknesses of journalism are intensified because of it. You know, what bothers me is that I listen to a million stations and probably believe nothing most of the time. You could listen to the same report told by 10 different people with a different take to it. I often mm-hmm. wonder, do you think that um, they try to egg the public on or is public just taking it at face value? 
Well, again, um, I, I think that there there's certainly with the Internet uh, uh, mm-hmm. an emphasis on clickbait, on trying to be as sensational as possible in order for you to, you know, uh, click and read and be exposed to the uh, advertisements and so on. Um, so, yeah, I do think that there is that, but I mm-hmm. also feel that there is responsible journalism that the emphasis is to inform rather than persuade. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's always going to be, no matter what the organization is, there's always going to be, an em- not an emphasis, but they're going, they're going to try to present whatever it is they're presenting in a way that's interesting, engaging, and not boring. There's nothing wrong with that to, to hook a reader. Um, but it's a matter of what it is that, what is it that they deliver, you know, is this, is there substance there or mm. is it spin? And that's where it's important to be discerning. Well, there are two questions in question one. <laughs> this is just me <laughs> and my mind working. What is the mm-hmm. difference between we must have been great working with Wolf Blitzer for the situation room, oh my God. Um, yes. What's the difference between a White House correspondent and working as an editor on CNN? My nephew's got a journalism degree; he's going for a master's in it. So that's why, part of the other reason why I'm asking. Uh huh. Well, uh, being a correspondent, whether it's a White House correspondent or just yeah. a, you know a beat reporter or whatever, you're just trying to find out what's going on. And um, on, on the other side, there's the editor. That's sort of the gatekeeper. Um, when, when a reporter gets information and writes it up, uh, it, doesn't ju- it, it shouldn't just go on the air or go into the newspaper uh, without at least other eyes getting onto it to be a check and a balance uh, to guard against uh, any number of problems that can happen. And so, you know, the reporter's job is to answer the questions who, where, what, when, why, and how. It's the editor's job to find out, to make sure that the information is accurate, to make sure that there's no bias in the reporting, and to make sure that everything is spelled right and is written clearly. So it's in a sense, two sides of the same coin. Mm. So the next question is, what was it like to work with Wolf Blitzer? With Wolf, yeah, Wolf what is, was it worth like? Is he good? Well, Wolf is, Wolf is a, great, uh, a great person and a journalist journalist. Mm. Um, he's very, he, he, I think more than anything, he cares about accuracy. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and so he's very and and yet at the same time he maintains cordial uh, relationships with people all across the political spectrum and um, uh, be, be, because uh, in our society you know uh, the Democrats aren't always in control the Republicans mm-hmm. aren't always in control um, and so there are there are leaders in both parties. And Wolf makes it a point to get to know them and to understand where they're coming from, why they believe what they believe, and what it is that they do believe, and how they're going to do their job. And so he's a journalist journalist because um, he believes in holding people accountable um, mm-hmm. because that's what 
um, that's what the job is of a, of a reporter in, a, uh, uh, in our society. So I don't know if I answered just... that. I don't know if I, I don't know if I answered that well enough. He's a very funny person. He's kind. He's funny. I think mm. he's kind of shy, and uh, he was he's a, he was fun to work with. I worked with him seven years, and I still don't know what his politics are. <laughs> How did you get into journalism, and was it difficult to go from being a journalism journalist to a writer? Well, the how I got into journalism is that my dad was a lawyer, and so he and I were mm. going to practice together, and I wanted to use the law as a stepping stone to get into politics because, you know, I was very interested in politics. I was uh, 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 I was 13 when Kennedy was assassinated, and so his presidency was uh, – was sort of the uh, watershed mm. experience for me growing up, and um, uh, and yet when I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison to go to college, uh, it was during the anti-war v- years during Vietnam, and the rhetoric was so overheated from both the left and the right that I was very suspicious of uh, partisans. And so I, I found myself gravitating toward journalism because that was a place I felt where I could better discern what the truth was. And so the transition from wanting to go into politics uh, went mm. from that to getting into journalism. And journalism, I found, was something that I really enjoyed doing and did it for 45 years. The transition from journalism to writing fiction happened when I became an editor at CNN, and I discovered that it was tedious. It was fault finding. It wasn't as creative as being a report as being a reporter was. Mm. And so I uh, began to teach myself how to write fiction uh, because I needed that creative outlet. And you know, it was a gradual transition because. You know, A, I was, you know, I had a day job, I had three kids, a wife, a mortgage, uh, you know, all of those things. And I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to write fiction. And so Mm. the novel that I wrote, Fast Track, um, took 10 years for me to find the agent that I'd got. and, uh, and And the manuscript went through like 14 major revisions, and my agent is the 39th agent that I queried. So, you know, it took a long time to make that transition. And for a while, I was both a novelist and a journalist. I retired from CNN 10 years ago. And so now I work full time as a writer, manuscript editor, and writing coach. That's, that's amazing. I wrote my first book because my sister, before she died, told me I look like an elephant because my mom had hey. Alzheimer's. Yeah, she did. Mm. She was born. I miss her. She died, my sister, mm. uh, 12 years, 13 years ago. And then that's mm. a whole other question mark. And she said, mm. you know, you can become a couch potato. So I said, you're going to resent the fact. I never wrote a book in my life. I said, I'm going to mm. write stories about growing up with you, and you're going to be so sorry. And I did. <laughs> it was very, very telling, but it was hard. And just to get a publisher, I used the wrong one. And I knew I was mm. getting uh, ripped off the first time. But I didn't do it the how second. They charged that? so much. How did you, how yeah, did you know the, that? the editing and everything, it's horrible. So, mm-hmm. in your opinion, is social media, I wonder, 
This is this is a question that everybody's been asking. Is social media a blessing or a curse? Or do you think that people sort of like rev other people up? Because I was on Facebook before. I just ignore half of what I read. Mm-hmm. I think it's a blessing and a curse. Um, I yeah. wish that it had been around more when I was a reporter because it's a portal to find mm-hmm. out all kinds of information. Um, you know, Wikipedia, Google, you know, they've been great sources mm-hmm. of, of information. But the, the problem also is that, you know, everyone with a phone and, you know, a Facebook app or a Twitter account or, you know, access to social media, mm-hmm. everyone with a phone has the potential to be a publisher. Whenever you like something, whenever you pass something on and share it, you are a publisher. But the problem with this, and this is where the curse comes in, um, in journalism, there's always an editor saying to the reporter, where'd you get that? How do you know that? That isn't the case with, you know, Joe Schmo sharing something, you know, that they saw on the Internet. Uh, And so consequently, the curse is that there's just a lot of misinformation out there. And again, it goes back to this thing that I've said several times. We need to be discerning about the information that we're consuming. Well, I agree with you because I found out something the other day I didn't even know. I went to post a review on Amazon. I've been reviewing for Amazon for 15 years. I have never written a derogatory or negative review. I got this big thing up. You cannot review any more for us because we noticed some unusual whatever. I must have called them, I counted, 25 or 30 times. There's not one person that comprehended that I said, I don't want a product. It's my book reviews. They haven't fixed it, so I said, the heck with it. I just won't deal with you. And for some reason, they think I got hacked. Uh, I don't even know. So I, I gave up on that. But I put my reviews on my review site on Facebook, so good enough. And my review site just reviews. So this is interesting because people write from different voices and different perspectives. And you write from the voice of a woman's perspective. What have you learned about the mistakes men make forging ahead meaningful relationships with women? Because people just sort of take things for granted. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an intriguing question, and, and um, you uh, you put it there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's it's. I write as a woman. I mean, I'm I'm. I write as a woman in her twenties, and I'm not either. <laughs> and I I started doing that uh, almost by accident because when I started writing fiction, someone suggested that I should write in a way that stretches who I am. I've never been a woman before, so I decided mm-hmm. to do that. And I discovered that um, gender is, you know, emotions are not gender specific. Mm-hmm. And um, I was at CNN for 25 years, and so that's 25 years worth of conversations with many young women in their early to mid-20s mm-hmm. who would tell me their stories about their boyfriends and girlfriends and careers and mm-hmm. families and all that kind of stuff. And so I just learned about what it's like to be a woman by asking those questions. Um, and the fact that, you know, you're a woman and you read Fast Track, and I presume, I mean, it was a very nice review. And so apparently, uh, I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I get the mm-hmm. impression 
because you like my stuff that I you think I get it right. Am I right? Yeah, you got it right. Let me tell you, I, I grew, grew up, I was probably the one girl that sat in the corner and didn't get asked to dance, ever. Mm. Yeah, oh and then I, I know, I'll never forget it. Somebody said something to me, he said, you know, you're overweight, I weigh 100 pounds now, and you're not pretty. I said, oh, well. I said, but I do have an advantage over all of you. And they looked at me and they said, I'm smarter than all of you, get straight A's, bye, and walked away. <laughs> True story. Great- there's a well, and there's a great anecdote that Dustin Hoffman tells about um, his involvement in the in the movie Tootsie, um, in which he uh, is a struggling actor and is not making it, and so he cross dresses as a woman mm-hmm. in order to get a part mm-hmm. on a soap opera and becomes mm-hmm. a national sensation. And um, the subplot is that he's trying to. Um, get close to um, his uh, 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 co-star, a woman. And so one of the things that he discovered is that when he, it was his idea for the movie, and he went to one of the makeup artists and said, make me into a beautiful woman. And so they worked their magic, and he wasn't as beautiful as he thought he should be. And mm-hmm. they said, dude, that's as good as it's going to get. And and he started to cry because he said that um, the woman that Tootsie was was not the kind of person that he would have ever chatted up at a party because she wasn't mm-hmm. pretty. And yet he knows from being her in the role that she was a fantastically interesting person. And mm-hmm. he said he realized at that point how many he wondered how many interesting women he could have met if he hadn't applied the standard of beauty as the mm-hmm. uh, the standard for getting to know them and, he, and so he said for him Tootsie was not a comedy uh, and so I think that a lot of the mistakes that the, the, the question to go back to you know where we started the question is a lot of the mistakes that men make in their relationships with women is that you know, their goal is to get laid, and consequently, mm-hmm. they really don't care about the other person as a person. They care about the other person as an object, and, uh, and, and so what I've discovered is that, you know, if you take the ulterior motive off the table and just get to know the other person, um, you know, friendship is an incredible experience, and we miss mm-hmm. it often, men, uh, because they don't approach it uh, as a friendship. They report, they approach it as a conquest. Okay. Just a drop of water. Okay. <laughs> now, this is, this is the next one. This is a tough one. You said that um, now that you've honed in your writing experience, your fourth novel, Bullet in the Chamber, deals with 22-year-old son's heroin overdose and death. Why would you ta- want to tackle a personal and t- painful topic like that? That must have been hard. It was very hard. I mean, I cried the whole time I wrote the book. And, and I'd have to you know, say, you know, did I want to write the book? Well, no, not really. Um, but I felt compelled. Um, the... 
the story. I mean, I I was dealing. I was I write as a as a woman, as you know, and it's a series. So this, by the time Bullet in the Chamber came along, I'd already written three other novels, and so um, I, I was I was writing Troubled Water, my third novel, when my youngest son Stephen uh, went missing. Uh, he was 22. He was um, a cook at a high-end restaurant in the, mm. in the D.C. area. Um, he was a musician. He taught himself how to play drums. Um, he had a lot of redeeming qualities, um, but he also became addicted to uh, drugs mm. and heroin. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know that until the last month of his life, and we had a heart-to-heart talk about it. And he was in the process of trying to turn his life around. And um, so when he went missing, that was out of character for him. And so I just in my heart knew that it was not going to end well, and it didn't. He was found dead in my car in D.C. Oh, God. In, in, in about, a, about a block and a half from where we lived. It was an accidental heroin overdose. And, um, and it, it, yeah, it's horrible. And it took, mm-hmm. I don't know, it probably took me two years to even you know, start to write the book. And, um, and I used the uh, experience of the time when he was missing and the struggle with heroin, and I, and I put it into the story as a subplot that's also going on in the life of my protagonist, Lark Chadwick. So the, it, it, the writing was a catharsis. It was a way of working through the problem uh, and the pain, uh, while at the same time trying to tell an engaging story. And I guess the, you know, what I've discovered is that writers write what they know, and mm-hmm. we all have pain and loss in our lives, and so um, our society tends to anesthetize the pain, but I try to teach my writing students to move toward the pain because that's where your story material will be coming from. Well, as a journalist and a, and a editor and stuff like that, um, wouldn't you, how do you, how would you deal with this to tell people if you if you were going to do an, an article, if you were going to do um, a specific thing on television? I've been watching the media too many times, and I've never smoked a drink or anything like that in my life, but I know mm-hmm. people that did. And I know people that mm-hmm. did overdose. And parents today are not watching that carefully because if you watch the news the other day, middle school kids are vapping and they're, and, mm-hmm. they're, and they're taking drugs after school. I mean, I taught for a very long time in a tough school in the Bronx and I saw somebody selling something and I called the police and took care of it. But a mm-hmm. lot of people just ignore. So how do you tell people, you know, if you see something, then don't stop it. And how many parents are actually aware at this time of this day and age? I don't even know if they're aware of what their kids do. They just go to school, mm-hmm. run around, go to a party, I'll see your ma. And then when they come back plastered, they don't say anything. That's the difference. Well, I mean, I, again, I, I don't know that I can make a blanket statement on parenting, mm-hmm. on how other people raise their kids. Um, I know how much my wife and I cared about mm-hmm. Stephen yep. and we did our best to, you know, intervene and, and model responsible behavior and 
there's mm-hmm. bridges of communication which we had, but um, you know, you you it's it's drugs are insidious and yeah, especially, especially highly addictive drugs. And and so even though I I fault myself, I mean if you if you want to judge me as a parent, get in line because I got there first. Uh, but you know you can. Uh, I think that there are people who are caring parents and are still uh, troubled by um, um, children who have become addicted, uh, and and that's the the difficulty of becoming a parent because. Um, you can only do so much, and when a kid mm-hmm. is 22 years old, they're not a kid anymore. You know what I mean? They're an adult. They don't have and to listen, yeah. That's right. And so I think it's a very difficult problem, and I don't think I've got the magic wand that can even begin to get to the solution to the problem. I think that's why I butt into my nieces and nephews' parents and them. Mm-hmm. I think that's why my, my brother's ready to kill me sometimes. My nephews mm-hmm. never drink or anything like that. And I do talk to them a lot. And my nieces just became an RN, and one just got her first job as a medical assistant today, thanks to me for driving her crazy and helping her. I just worry. <laughs> because mm-hmm. my other niece is into music, and she's got some uh, songs that I'm going to drop. And I say, Carly, this is a dangerous business, and I don't mm-hmm. want you to get into doing the wrong thing. So I'm on. I'm, right. I'm on in. I don't even at this point in my life. I don't care. I'm too young to get old. So, <laughs> what would you say? What would you say to someone listening right now who feels he has an interesting Torah story to tell? And how do you get? How do you decide what to write? But big. What's the biggest obstacle? I wrote my first book a long time ago, but I've been writing whatever, and I can't find the one that everybody loves. Because I write from the point of view of the dead body behind the gravestone that tells their story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's the biggest obstacle facing a person who has decided to write a, a book? I think that uh, it's very easy for a person to sell themselves short. Um, yeah. People have ideas to tell stories, but uh, we have, uh, I, I think, a voice in our heads that tells you know, that says, well, you're really not that good or, you know, you don't have the discipline or, you know, any number of excuses. And I think so one of the biggest obstacles is ourselves. We just talk mm-hmm. ourselves out of it. Um, I think, though, that there are other, there are plenty of obstacles along the way if you do decide to um, harness a story and tell it. Um, mm-hmm. Probably the biggest is just the ability uh, you know, we can all we can all become better communicators. It's not like we're all natural communicators, but we do communicate. And it's just a matter of, I think, a, a person who has a desire to tell a story, whether it's fiction mm-hmm. or nonfiction, needs to understand how to do that. They should t- go to writers' conferences. They should take writing classes so mm-hmm. that they can you know, take their raw ability and desire and uh, harness it and mold it so that they become effective storytellers um, and then learn the business, learn um, how it's done, what the parameters are, what the requirements are. So I think that there are some, there are obstacles, definitely. Uh, but once you get past yourself, 
then it's just a matter of uh, of learning and growing by doing. Do you help them get it published? I mean, I, I've noticed a lot of authors. I, I've read over ten thousand books in the last ten years, maybe more. I'm serious. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. scary sometimes, and each one of these new authors, you know, the debut novel, blah blah blah, Harper Collins, Kit Kit, um, Comcat, and all the rest of them, and yet some of the people like myself, I use self-publishing, can't get a, a regular person to do to do it. They can't get anybody to do it, you know, to take the book. And then you, you begin to write something, and the worst part is, is that you hand it to an editor or you hand it to a major publishing company, and they say, I'm sorry, you get a rejection. So how mm-hmm. do you overcome that and realize that your story may not be what they want, but it has merit? That's a really good question, and and yeah. it's a very important and practical one uh, mm-hmm. because it can be very discouraging when you try to get published traditionally, try to get an agent, try to, you know, get a, a publisher, you know, to be rejected over and over again. And that is, that is a, an occupational hazard. Um, mm-hmm. and it, but it need not be so discouraging that a person gives up uh, because, you know, if you really believe in the story and in your ability to tell it, then... You know, you can learn from the rejections because every now and then you'll get a rejection mm. that gives you some guidance on what's falling short. Um, it's good to have beta readers, people in your life who will read the uh, the manuscript and give you honest feedback about what's not mm. working because writing is very subjective. And so if you've got a handful of people um, to read your manuscript, if there are weaknesses, it's very possible that the people will see the same weaknesses. Um, you know, the, or they'll at least see different things that you can address. Um, so, but publishing has gotten to the point now where, because of self-publishing, it is entirely possible for you to get your story out there. Um, because you know, you, you can go to Amazon and upload it today. Um, it's it's very easy to get your book out there. But the problem is. But I, th- I, I can't remember the exact statistic, but there's probably something like 10,000 books a day that are being yep. published. It's crazy. Um, you're, you know, so many books, so little time. I admire you for reading as much as you, you do. I wish, I, wish I was able to do that. I'm too slow a reader and there's too much other stuff competing for my time. But I love to read, and what makes it maddening is that there's a lot of schlock out there. There's a lot of stuff that's just not readable. And, that's right. Um, and so, you know, the traditional publishers, and there are only about four or five of them, you know, they have very high standards. They don't just let anybody get on, you know, get a book out there. Um, and so there are just so many books out there already. Um, there's one friend of mine who was an acquisitions editor at a major publishing house, and she told me, that, you know, these people get like 50 queries a day. And so um, they are looking. She said, if, I don't, if I'm not hooked, she said, on the first page, I'm looking for, I'm, I'm already ready to move on. It's, the writing has got to be so good that I'm impelled, compelled to turn the pages. And what I've experienced as a writing coach and editor 
is that a lot of times people don't understand that, and they take a hundred pages to give you backstory about the characters without ever getting the story started. And, um, and so, you know, I think that there there are a lot of reasons why people get discouraged about the process because they don't understand just how competitive it is. Oh, I, I agree with you. And considering I've read thousands of books, and yet I wonder sometimes how some of these authors actually get picked for these major right. publishing companies because I, I started one um, yesterday and I said I'll pass on that. And mm-hmm. then I don't usually pass on anything. And then mm-hmm. there was another one and I was saying, oh, my God. Now, I got my last book called Accusations is told from the point of view of the dead bodies that were wrongly accused. I had paid mm-hmm. a lot of money to get an editor to do it, even though it was self-published. There were no mm-hmm. editing mistakes, but I had five people read it, five different editors. Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. I was on a book tour, and one of the ladies said, well, this is poorly edited, and I did answer her. I said, it's mm-hmm. not poorly edited. Maybe you just didn't understand what I wrote. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? Not everybody is going to like everything. So you there have to you understand. My, I had my sister and my mother-in-law. When they died, I was lost. But this mm-hmm. is the hardest part. As a, ma- as a matter of, besides having writer's block, which everybody gets once in a while, as a manuscript editor, or before I forget, let me not forget, tomorrow at 11, special time, New York Times author Philip Margolin, Betrayal. That's tomorrow. And on Monday, this is so cute, just for the holidays, Ed Dup, Deb Hockenberry's Elves for a Day. And that takes care of November. I won't even tell you what's coming up. My show is booked, everybody, to the end of March. So if you've got something coming out, Oh, a new one, you better tell me now, because it's all blocked up, which is which keeps my mind going. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I will not read anything that has a lot of bad language, ever. And for those of you that don't know, the 2023 Just Reviews Awards come out next month, and that's all I'll say about that. We'll not tell anymore. As a manuscript editor, what is the most common mistakes that writers make? And do you ever find that um, somebody steals a plot line from another author because they think it's going to work? Um, I have not come across uh, authors uh, or writers <laughs> stealing stuff from others uh, from other writers. I know, I'm sure it happens. Uh, yeah, it does. Um, you know, uh, ideas are a dime a dozen, and so the real question is, can you take somebody else's idea and uh-huh. uh, and make it engaging? Um, this is why. Um, publishers uh, and agents uh, will not accept um, a a, a person just based on an idea. Uh, You need Mm. to deliver. You don't even start pitching an agent until you've got your manuscript finished. Um, Probably the biggest mistake I come across from rookie writers is, and I alluded to it earlier, too much backstory. They, you know, Mm -hmm. they give all the context and all the atmospherics before yeah, I know. the actual story starts. And um and so that's that's a big problem, you know, that I fight. Um probably probably the biggest. I agree, that's when I skip over the pages. Hmm. I'm serious. Mm-hmm. I, I I literally read one book yesterday. I could read five in a day if my eyes don't bother me. And mm-hmm. I should say I'm a speed reader, but I'm also a reading and writing specialist. That's my job mm-hmm. for a lot of mm-hmm. years. 
So, and I love teach. I love reading, and I love teaching kids that have learning disabilities how to read. They also learned mm-hmm. how to read a hundred, a hundred uh, pages a day. <laughs> they actually mm-hmm. did. So, mm-hmm. manuscript edited. They most, uh, But what advice do you give to some somebody that's starting out? And how do you stay disciplined and organized? Do you write an outline, or do you just write? Or do you just think of an idea? And let's say you're mm-hmm. going to write, I won't say why I'm saying this, let's say you're going to write a book, and then the book is based on a true story. Do you have mm-hmm. to change the names of the people, or can you use their real name? Well, there's a, there are a lot of questions there. Where do you want to start, Fran? <laughs> well, let's say I decide to write a book about something that really happened to me, which I am. And am I allowed to use the names of the people? Or do I well, have you're to allowed. Their names? You're allowed. You're allowed to do anything. The question oh, is: good. Is it why? Is it why? Um, if you are writing a memoir, then um, memoir is by definition nonfiction, so you don't yeah. get to make stuff up. Um, if, however, uh, you have a character or a person in your in your memoir who's something of a villain, you know, that there are things about them that are um, unpleasant uh, um, yeah, and they will be. Or, or illegal or, or immoral or whatever, you can use their name, but unless you get them, give them an opportunity to give their side of it, uh, you are at risk of being sued for slander or libel mm. in the case of writing. So... Um, often, what I, I uh, my suggestion to people who are trying to take something from their personal life and yeah. write about it, I give them I give them two suggestions. One is if you're going to do it as a memoir, uh, and you've got someone in there who's done something immoral, you may want to change their name and in some mm-hmm. way camouflage their identity so that they are not held up to ridicule. Um, because the whole purpose of writing a memoir shouldn't be revenge and gotcha. It should be to, in, in some sense, bring a truth to light. And um, uh, so, so there is that. Uh, and, but you need to be upfront with the reader that you're doing that, you know, that you've changed names or you've changed you know, significant details so as to not embarrass someone, uh, because you can tell the capital T truth by changing the small t details. On the other hand, um, I also suggest that if you're taking a story that really happened to you, um, you may want to fictionalize it because Mm. by fictionalizing it, you really have a lot more freedom to embellish and to underline the, um, the nefariousness of the other person and to just make it more engaging and entertaining. Uh, than maybe the actual facts were. Um, and so there are really two approaches that you can take. Either is valid and maybe both. You know, maybe you can do a memoir and a novel. No, I agree with you. Basically, I don't want to say it on the end, not that I care anymore. It's based on a real-life incident of something that happened to me that I didn't know about until I found out that it was there. So you go in, you know, to a doctor's office, and all of a sudden you get said, "Guess what, Brand? You got this lovely entity in your jaw. This is the truth." And I look at the doctor, and go, "What are you talking about? You don't know it's there until it's there. Then when it's operated on, you wind up in permanent damage, not because of the, not because of the uh, surgeon, 
It's because of the person that missed it. So it's very hard not to feel that, yeah. And it's not even the person. That what's really funny is that the person that missed it sent the x-rays to, to me to, to show that he missed it four times. <laughs> it's the per- Yeah. And he knows he did. He called me every single day. I even have the phone records to prove it. And yet the person that's defending him is is destructive and, and whatever. So I often wonder, is it worth it? to write the story because I just want to write what really happened and I know mm-hmm. how vindictive she is so I thought about mm-hmm. what if I just write like you know manuscript others you see I try to stay disciplined and organized and I try to be honest what would happen mm-hmm. if I just wrote a review of about each of the persons I don't want a review I could write what I want it doesn't even have to be the truth uh, that's a hard well, one well if you did it uh, if you did it I mean you got to be careful when you start to criticize. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm thinking about it. By name. So I, I would be very careful. I mean, opinion is free speech. It's protected. But allegations of wrong, of wrongdoing or criminality can get you in yeah, trouble I know. fast. I know. And they did. It's so sad. But you know what? There's a God up there. I'm not going to worry about it. So for those of you that are promoting. First of all, I have to tell you, there's about 20 hands out for these books. I've got 100 books on the side of me that I've read that I'm going to take in a big bundle and give them to my porter because he, he gives them to his foreign, he gives them to a foreign country. So what advice would you give to writers who are shy about promoting themselves? Is it better mm-hmm. to do it by yourself on Facebook? Is it better to pay? I know I was asked if I wanted a publicist. That would only cost me $1,000 a month. That That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I do have somebody that's doing it for me on Facebook, but this one is mm-hmm. not as good as the other ones. So how do, you, how do you get your book out there or yourself out there without it costing you a million dollars? Really good question. And that's probably another one of those. That's one of those things that uh, people who are interested in writing don't understand. And that is mm. that um, if their book does get published, whether self-published or traditionally, they are mm. going to be the ones expected to carry the weight of the promotion of it. And, yeah. um, and, and that's a surprise often. And it's, and it's a bit overwhelming, especially because mm. I think a lot of people who are writers are shy are, or are introverted. And so, being a salesman is certainly not in their in their comfort zone, and so my and I teach a class on this. One of the one of the suggestions I make is that um, you write in order to make a connection with other people, and marketing is just another way to do that. Mm-hmm. You don't have to become an obnoxious used car salesman. All you need to do is just let people know that you've written a book. It's not selling. Telling, and so there are any number of ways to mm-hmm. let people know you've done that. Social media—that's one of the blessings of social media. It's an mm-hmm. incredible global reach, and so you can use your Facebook page, uh, your author's page on Facebook. Um, mm-hmm. You can have a website. You can have any number of uh, platforms in cyberspace to let people know uh, about it. Um, and there, there's a book called. Um, Oh gee, I can't offhand. I can't remember it now. Uh, but there are uh, uh, there are any number of resources that can help people to understand the marketing side 
of getting the book out there. And, it, and, and you don't have to spend a lot of money to do it. You don't have to hire a publisher. It's just a matter mm-hmm. of understanding where the people are and how to get in touch with them. No, I agree with you. And I have helped so many people. And yet it's very hard to get somebody to review my books. When they do, they either like it or don't. I don't even care anymore because I, I stand by what I write. And mm-hmm. I just write from the – I have real people. Each of my books about a real person, but the person is dead, and I just fictionalize it, but the event is real. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. nothing anybody could say. There are people yeah. that are wrongly accused, and most people think it's interesting, and some people just don't quite get it. But you know what? I don't even care about that anymore. The point of the matter is is that everybody should write. And I even told my, my, I was a writing coordinator, and I even told the kids in school, you're an author. The minute you put your words on a paper, be proud of what you say. Mm-hmm. And they looked at me. I said, it doesn't have to be spelled correctly or perfectly, but if I ask you a topic, just speak out and say what it is. And I never mm-hmm. had a class of children that never said, said, oh, my God, she's here. They said, oh, my God, what, she's going to ask us to write today? She's going to make us mm-hmm. laugh? It ha- you have to love what you're doing. And I That's did right. one other thing before we go. Is I did independent publishing. I won't say with who. And they did one of my last books, and it cost me a lot of money. I didn't realize it. They gave me an editor. They gave me a copy editor, blah, blah, blah. I worked with each one of them, and then I said, could you please make the chapters longer? The book was 76 pages. I said, it was based on a world with no people. And there was a world of darkness, a world of ice, a world of just trees, a world of sand, a, a world of dust. I said, would you like to live in one of my worlds, or would you be finally happy living in the one we're in? This is when the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a cool idea. Nobody got it. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering, and it cost me a lot, because I said to them, if you don't like the book, then don't take it. I said, and help me make it better. So what do you do when they with an independent publisher? It cost me thirty six hundred dollars. Well, but seventy six. Oh yeah. You see, you yeah, see and that, I didn't realize the, the, it. And the guy the, said, "Well, sign off, and you know, we'll we'll help you with it." The the book yeah, came out great, but most people hated it. I mean, I thought it well, was a great idea. Right, but you what what was happening there, and and is that you were paying for it to be published, which means yeah, exactly. that they didn't care whether it was good or not. Because they got paid up front, and that's the difference in uh, traditional publishing. In traditional right. publishing, they're gambling. They believe that this is something a lot of people will like, and consequently, their payday comes when the book starts selling. Um, consequently, with a lot of these self-published um, uh, uh, publishers, uh, if they get if they get paid up front, then it doesn't matter if it sells or not. I mean, if it does, great. But, you know, if they get $3,000 up front, then that's their payday. And so their motive for making the book better is diminished because of the money that's being paid to them up front. Well, that's why I use the self-publishing company I use. Um, She doesn't take the money until it's done. And until she puts it out there, lets you read it, see if you like it, send you office copies. She's rare. She does a good mm-hmm. job. 
and she has an editor, but I don't expect, but she doesn't do promotion. She doesn't do mm-hmm. any, any of that. That's right. So I try to That's do right. that by myself, yeah. So I have now to think about a different book to write. Yeah, and I, I and I don't want to. I don't want to give people the impression that I think that all, you know, self publishers self publishers are, are bad. You know, they're not. There, there, there are a lot of reputable ones out there, and you know, and and they have, you know, that you may need to pay for, you know, uh, you know, to have your book cover designed or edited mm-hmm. or promoted or whatever. But my advice is for people to try to go the traditional route first. You know, try to get an agent uh, because it's the agent who has the uh, entree to the major publishers. Uh, because if you go that route, it will, it will bring your writing to a professional level. So that if you then decide at some point to, be, to go the self-published route, your book will be far more superior than a lot of the other self-published books out there. No, I agree with you, but you know, when I first wrote My Name is Bertha, and I first wrote the one, I wrote three, but then I put it together, Sisters to Sisters from the South Bronx, I was uh, asked by uh, literary agents and different companies, and I read up on them, and I did backgrounds on them, and I realized that they were, they were fraud. They were not anybody mm-hmm. I wanted to work with. So you have mm-hmm. to even be careful. And then I said, if I ask somebody, you know, not every agent is going to take a book. They have to really want to think that it's going to mm-hmm. go out, or go out there. Mm-hmm. I know that too. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the hard part. Yeah. So my yeah. last question is: Yes, I may write the book. I may ask you to edit it. That would be nice. <laughs> that would be nice. I, I, I definitely because this way I would get an opinion as to whether it's worth my publishing it. Right. Right. So what's next for you? What's on your next of your horizon? Well, I'm glad you asked because just uh-huh. last week, um, actually this week, no, last week, I signed a contract for my sixth novel. Um, oh, goody. It's called, it's a political thriller. It's a continuation of the Lark Chadwick series. Um, the, in this one, the, the book starts, Lark is pregnant. She is oh, it's like her that. first day on it's her first day on the job as White House press secretary. The first mm. question that she's the first question that she's asked on live television comes from a Tucker Carlson type who asks, "Are you or are you not planning to abort your unborn child?" <gasps> That's how the oh, book wow. starts. So it's going to deal. I'm touching the third rail here. You know, we're we're going to deal with abortion, QAnon white Christian nationalism, and uh, mental illness. Um, and, and my publisher, Speaking Volumes, uh, plans to publish it in the summer uh, during the primary season ahead of the 2024 presidential election. So I'm excited about this one because it's very, I consider it very important. I want a copy of this, a pre, pre-release copy to review. No, I'm <laughs> okay. serious. Thank you. Seriously, because I've been getting some really junky books lately. And, you know, I, I, I'm honored when I get something from HarperCollins because they know me. They know what I'm not going to take. But I did get a book from a, a very well-known publishing company in England. I won't say what. I love them. And I started to read the book, and I said, you're going to have to forgive me. I'm, I'll read it, but I'm going to have to pass on it for a while. And they understood because mm-hmm. it just wasn't It's not my kind of book to read and mm-hmm. yet I've been reading 
books that I never thought. I think my the, the one most heart-wrenching book that I read the other day was A Shortage of Angels. And mm-hmm. just, just people to God, God, guardian angels. And it was really great. Of course, Fast Track is great. And I can't wait to read the new one. When it comes out, just let me know because we could do an hour about the book. Oh, I, I, I'm looking forward to it. The book is called uh, Enemies Domestic. Uh, it's a takeoff from it's, it's taken from the oath of office, where uh, mm. uh, uh, federal employees are uh, and uh, are uh, pledging to uh, defend the Constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic. And of course, oh, the nice. danger right now, the danger right now is that there are, you know, the leader of the Republican Party, the front runner of the Republican Party has Aye. already suggested that he will shred the Constitution. So we are teetering on the brink of you know, either going toward democracy, staying the course toward democracy, or going toward authoritarianism. The stakes could not be higher in 2024. This is scary. This is really scary. And the problem is, is that the, they they got the Democrats need to get somebody younger. I mean, I like Biden and everything, but they need to get somebody younger. Well, at least I don't know. Is, is, is he going to run with Kamala Harris again? Yeah, I think so. Ay ay ay. What can I say? But John, this has been the highlight of my day. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, thank you. Same here. You you made me <laughs> forget you. the other thing that I that I don't want to think about. Um, thank you so much. Everybody, it's a beautiful day outside. Um, if I do write the book, I'm going to send it to you to edit. This way, uh, at least I'll get somebody that will tell me if I'm doing it right or wrong. Thank you so much, John. Everybody have a great day. Stay safe. Thanks, Fran. Bye. Thank you. Bye.